0: I should be. I just want to be left alone to do whatever I please. I still can't really say what it is I'm looking for, but I've gladly left behind the Welcome to the Different Functional Podcast. I am Autumn, the older sister, and when I feel extremely stressed in social situations, I often find I have an uncontrollable impulse to talk about poop. I can't hear that and not laugh. (laughs) Um,
1: I'm Ivy, the younger sister. My fact of the day is that for quite some time now, I have had a murder of crows that hangs out on my roof and they just caw down my chimney and I caw back at them. And that is almost to the extent of my social interactions outside of the context of work, and I have decided that I enjoy socially interacting with crows much more than I enjoy socially interacting with most human beings.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I I would say that is probably true for both of us, um, in that you and I both definitely experience social anxiety, and that is our topic of the day, if you had not yet guessed, is social anxiety. And so we were going to start out by you know diving into like the dsm-5 criteria of you know how to be diagnosed as socially anxious and what all those symptoms and stuff were so basically by the dsm-5 criteria you have social anxiety because you have fear or anxiety in social situations and social situations make you fearful or anxious It kind of goes on and on like that. So basically, you get the idea. Social anxiety is where you have fear or anxiety in social situations. And now the social anxiety we're going to be talking about today isn't necessarily the diagnosable one. I feel like a lot of us have social anxiety. I mean, it might tie in with other anxiety disorders. It might tie in with other like autistic spectrum disorders. And some of us just have social anxiety because social situations are freaking scary and hard to navigate. Um, So today we're going to be talking about social anxiety, but we did want to preface it with the fact that Ivy and I are going to be talking a lot about our experiences and the experiences of those around us. And because Ivy and I are really awkward people. And we know a lot of awkward people. A lot of our social anxiety is very much on that awkward variety. And it comes from that, that, that vein of not really fitting in. And so we do know out there that there are some people that are charismatic and amazing and seem like they fit in wonderfully in social situations, but they still experience a lot of social anxiety. And so if you're one of those people that is just you know, amazing at social situations and nobody would ever guess you're anxious, but you still experience social anxiety. We would love to hear from you about, you know, what drives that anxiety and what does that anxiety look for like for you? So to get started with today, let's kind of look at what social anxiety actually looks like. Ivy, you want to speak to that? I I know that for me.
1: Probably the most noticeable thing other than the fact that I go completely silent is that I shake like a fucking chihuahua as soon as I get into a social situation, like my whole body vibrates. So I think starting off with body things, that's definitely the biggest one for me. I tense up and then I start vibrating and I can't make it stop. And then sometimes I get like a frozen smile on my face and my eyes go really big and I probably look like I'm an insane person. What about you? What what
0: happens to, to your <laughs> body when you are socially anxious? Do you go into chihuahua mode? I, I do go into chihuahua mode. I get shaky. I usually do that right before presentations. A lot of people think I'm great at presenting. They love when I step up and do like trainings and the different things I do for my work. But I, I do. I shake. And with that comes shortness of breath. Like I feel like I forget how to breathe. Like I'm Bob from Monsters vs. Aliens. and I'm like... <laughs> it's just it's i don't my body's like is this a rhythm do i do i roll in now should i pull i don't know what's going on and so i definitely get the shaky It, it definitely affects my breath and then if i'm in the situation long enough so comes the pain because being anxious makes me tense And when my muscles are tense, I start hurting. So I start getting the sore shoulders. I start getting the headache. I start getting the neck pain. And that'll usually carry myself way into the next day or two. You know, the social situation may have only been like 12 minutes, but now I luckily have a headache that's going to last for, you know, 48 hours based on that 12 minutes.
1: Yeah. uh, You were saying that it affects your breathing, which is interesting because I had never really thought about the breathing. I've noticed that social situations do impact my heartbeats. There is something about social anxiety that makes your body forget how to do things it naturally does all the time because I get heart palpitations that I don't associate with just like normal nervousness. I know nervousness can cause that, but it literally feels sometimes like my heart has forgotten how to be in rhythm. So it's interesting to me that you have that with breathing. And now I'm wondering if I have that with breathing and I've never noticed it because I'm so focused on my heart and being like, are you gonna s- stop? Do I need to be worried? Should I, should I go to the hospital? Maybe it's not good for my health to be around people. But yes, moving on from from that point. The pain, I get that too. Like I get neck pain, shoulder pain, mostly from, well, probably from not breathing properly because when you don't exhale, your shoulders never release. So then everything just clenches up more and more and more so that it probably does affect my breathing. But I get pain from the, the neck, head, shoulder area. Mostly though, I just feel really physically drained. After I have been around people for very long, and it, like a large, the larger the group, the more exhausted I'll be. But even small groups of like four or five people will leave me feeling incredibly drained.
0: I so relate to that, and I, and I think like to even give people a perspective, and and I think this is true for you, Ivy. If not, I'm about to offend you. But <laughs> Ivy and I have of course known each other all of her life, so quite a while, a few decades now, and we definitely like each other. We enjoy being around each other. But when we have lived next to each other and we're actually able to visit, even being around Ivy for three, four, five, six hours, by the time I leave, I'm exhausted. It's not bad. And I'm not saying I don't want to hang out with her because I I definitely enjoy it. But even just being around my sister, who I'm looped with, who I have a history with, who I'm trauma bonded with, who I actively like and would like to seek out. Even that can make me anxious and wear me out and exhaust me to the point that afterwards I'm like, oh, God, I'm glad we only do this once a week. (laughs) So did I offend you or do you feel the same?
1: No, I do not feel insulted at all. Uh, I am, after all, quite an exhausting person to be around for long periods of time.
0: So no, I am not offended. I feel like (laughs) that is an
1: accurate representation. I feel like as much as I need a break from other people, other people probably need a break from me too. That's my assumption. How much of that is true, I don't know. I assume I am exhausting to be around. I feel exhausting being around myself.
0: See, but like the thing is for me, to me, like if I look at you and I, I don't feel like you're the exhausting one. Like I feel like I'm the exhausting one because, and we'll just jump right into the behavioral symptoms. So we kind of looked at some of the physical and we'll look at the behavioral. So to give you an idea of what this difference looks like, I get into a social situation and what happens is I have pressure of speech. And I'm going to talk and I'm going to get loud and my expressions are going to get big and I'm going to get directive with things. And I'm going to just be the center of attention. And that's what I do because I'm very, very uncomfortable. And so the only way I can start feeling even a little bit of safety in that situation is by controlling the fuck out of it. And in order to do that, I am the star. I'm amazing. I am out thinking everybody in the room. My hand gestures are big. I don't know how many times I have knocked iced tea over into Ivy's lap when we have been out because I am just like, whoa, and people think I'm drunk. And back in those days, I didn't even drink. I just had a little bit of caffeine in me and so many jitters. I was like freaking out of it. And so for me, that's really exhausting. But I feel like when you get into social situations, Ivy, like from what I've seen, that's not what you do. No, it is not what I do. Although for the record, I will say I'm pretty sure you've only
1: spilled iced tea in my lap once. I have ended up with other food and drinks on me, but the iced tea, I feel like that's only happened one time. And I remember it pretty distinctly because well, it was cold and it landed right in my crotch and then I looked like I peed myself for the whole night.
0: <laughs> well, I think I've um, replayed that memory in my head so many times. It feels like at least a dozen times because i have thought about how embarrassing that is even though that was like a decade ago just for the record embarrassing for you or embarrassing for me or for both i think both i mean just embarrassing for you because you look like you peed <laughs> yourself and then like how sad is it that i'm like this 25 year old woman that can't control my arms and need a fucking sippy cup because other people aren't safe from my fluids
1: i was actually not embarrassed at all i i I recall being pretty mellow about it. I think I just kind of like calmly stood up and started started like brushing ice and stuff off my lap. And then somebody at the bar came with a towel and wiped down the table. And I was not embarrassed because like for me, it wasn't embarrassing because pretty much everybody there, because it was a a fairly calm night at the bar because it was like in the middle of the week. And so, pretty much everybody there was part of our group. So everybody had seen it happen. So I'm like, none of these people think I peed myself because they saw the iced tea hit my lap. So it was probably more embarrassing for you than it was for me. It was mostly it was mostly just cold and wet for me. So you don't need to, be, need to be worried about me having been embarrassed from that. And it's the only time that you've thrown iced ice tea in my lap, so I'm not going to take it too personally. <laughs> but back to the, uh, the topic at hand. No, I do not have the same response in a social situation that you do. I feel no desire to be the center of attention or to be the star unless I am performing. The only time that I feel at ease In like around a large group of people is if I am like performing, singing, speaking, doing something like that, where I am talking or singing or acting at people, but I don't actually have to interact with them. When I actually have to interact with them, if like I'm thrown into a party situation or a crowded bar situation, my natural instinct is to, is to disappear as much as possible. Try not to be noticed, try not to draw attention to myself. I spend a lot of time in the bathroom, like drinking not always excessive amounts of alcohol, but drinking at least excessive amounts of water so that I have as many excuses to go to the bathroom as possible throughout the night, with the hopes that whoever it is that I was talking to before I went to the bathroom, if I was stuck in a conversation, will have forgotten I exist by the time I come out. Or if I see somebody approaching me, I can make a mad dash for the bathroom under the pretense that I have to pee really bad. So that's, that is that is my way of dealing with social situations is to stay extremely well
0: hydrated and as
1: invisible as possible.
0: And, and see, that's why I say, I don't think you're really that exhausting. I mean, you're more like a, a social ninja in that capacity. I'm like a social Kool-Aid man bursting through the wall. But <laughs> I find it kind of interesting with that because even though our behaviors tend to be very different I feel like we actually have a lot of the same mental symptoms that go behind that, which is kind of crazy that it ends up being so very different for us. So, you know, there's that inability to focus. So even if you do want to talk to somebody, you're just almost just staring at their lips move and just thinking how weird it is or whatever, because you can't even think about what they're talking about your brain freezes up a lot or at least mine does you can't think of anything to say which again like my fact of the day that's why i go to poop there's just some little part in my brain that goes talk about poop now poop that relates to poop i'm like i think they're talking about their kids you know they're grown up in college i don't think that relates to poop poop." (laughs) it's just my brain freezes and for whatever reason that's like the social thing that has popped in there I got to say, maybe the reason you feel compelled to talk about poop is because
1: other than like dying, poop is one of the few things all humans share in common. Like Everybody has to poop. So everybody has a wide variety of experiences with pooping. And it's less depressing than talking about dying, which is the other common denominator <laughs> among among human beings. Just I don't know, just a thought. Yeah, I definitely freeze up all the time in social situations, whether it's in a group of people or one-on-one. I don't do well with having to think of things under pressure. I guess the way that social anxiety mentally for me shows up the most is like I feel this obligation to interact when somebody is interacting with me and I don't like that sense of obligation. And I'm so focused on shit, now I have to interact that I forget how to and my brain goes completely blank or I just end up and this is, I've noticed I do this on the podcast. I have noticed this aspect of myself for several years now and it annoys the living shit out of me and no matter how hard I try to break it, I can't seem to, I am incredibly redundant. I will find 50 different ways to say the exact same phrase for no reason at all. It's like, if I can think of something, if my brain has not completely frozen up and I have one fucking thought, it's the only thought that I'll have. And I will restate the same thing multiple times in slightly different ways, which I'm like, okay, this is for one, really inefficient. Two, it's really annoying. And I often worry that I'm like, do people feel condescended by that? Because I don't know, somebody kept saying the exact same thing to me in the same way multiple times over a short period of time. I would be like, do they think I'm too stupid to understand it that way? Are they just like rephrasing this in several ways because they think I'm too dumb to get it the first time? I don't know, maybe that's just paranoia in my own anxiety and insecurity. But that is definitely one of the traits that I have that I hate the most, that I can't seem to break no matter how hard I try.
0: Well, I think with that, maybe that's your mind protecting you from talking against poop. Because I know you're not a big one of those people that's wanting to talk about poop or the fact that you poop. And so maybe that's your mind's way to like protect you. It's just like, oh, here's this fact about hamsters. Keep repeating the fact about hamsters. And so you have something to say and you feel that pressure of speech. But you know, at least now it's mildly socially acceptable. <laughs> Until I start talking about hamster poop. <laughs> and then it would not be <laughs> socially acceptable. <laughs> Well, I think that's like where it also goes into is, I feel like all of a sudden like the need to overshare because I don't really know how to connect to people. And we'll get into this later. I mean, there's different social situations and I'll definitely interact differently in one situation versus the other. But if I do feel like that obligation to interact or that desire to interact, I all of a sudden have this like oversharing tendency. Like I don't think there's been a social interaction that I've actively wanted to participate in in the last like five years. That at some point, I haven't just been like, I'm autistic spectrum. It's not fucking relevant. We never even talked about mental health. And I just had to throw that out there. Or, yeah, my mom was suicidal. Okay, what does that have to do with tequila? Because that's what we were talking about. That's the other thing I get is I just feel like I need to overshare. And I don't know if that's like this desperate attempt to connect to people or if that goes with part of the brain freeze and my mind's just like looking through whatever was randomly floating on top and just throws it at people. And since I think a lot about mental illness, it just throws that out. But oversharing is is a bad thing for me. And unfortunately, or fortunately, depending, I end up dead ending conversations a lot because of, <laughs> of that. So sometimes I do want to have an interaction. And I say something stupid and the person's just like, oh, um, OK, then I'm going to I'm going to go over here. Or, you know, that's also kind of a superpower that I can not want to be in the interaction and just be like, "Ha I have dead into this conversation. I have slayed it. I definitely do a lot of oversharing
1: as well. I think for me, part of it is because for so much of my life, like those Those things, my trauma, my mental health stuff, family stuff, like that was such a dominant force in my life for so long. And I've spent so many years just fixated on trying to recover from it or heal from it or whatever. Like in a lot of ways, even though I've had a lot of interesting life experiences and done some things that when I tell other people about it, they're like, oh my God, you've done a lot for somebody your age. Still, it feels like for the most part, like a lot of things I feel like I missed out on over the years because I was so fixated on these issues from my childhood and my trauma and like sexual abuse as an adult and like all of those things. And it's taken up so much of my attention for so long. Like I, it was like, I didn't have anything outside of that in a lot of ways. And I think that's one of the reasons why I tend to overshare is because where most people would call on topics for small talk, They would think to talk about the weather they'd think to talk about sports or they'd think to talk about politics those things almost don't even exist for me like they're starting to now at this point in my life but for most of my life those things didn't even exist for me because it's like i was struggling so hard to keep my head above water that it's i didn't have room for anything else anything else felt like a luxury it's like everybody else in the world was on a life raft floating in the ocean they could make small talk to avoid the awkwardness and and they could enjoy each other's company, but I'm drowning right next to them. And so when they would try to make small talk with me, I had nothing to contribute because I'm like, I can't breathe and I'm really tired and I feel like I'm about to go under. And for them it would be like, man, you're making things really weird now. But for me, I'm like, but this is what this is where I'm at. I'm drowning. You're not. I don't know how to interact with you because I am actively drowning. I don't know how to relate to somebody who's not actively drowning. I think that's part of the reason why I end up oversharing. And that's definitely dead-ended some conversations for me as well. But like you said, it's also sometimes like a superpower because I am not a particularly social person. I don't know if I would have been had we had more social interactions when we were kids, I have no idea, maybe I might have been more extroverted. But I doubt it because I was really, really shy even from my earliest memories before things got really bad at home. Because I'm not particularly social and I don't like feeling obligated to talk to people, there are times when I intentionally dead the conversation. And there's also times when I dead the conversation because like an interaction is purely transactional and then the other person tries to talk about other things. But to me, I'm like, but this was over now. So like something like that happened to me recently. I work one day a week for a guy in in, um, Seattle and he owns a few different massage practices. And one of the things I've been doing for him is doing some odd jobs at one of the practices, cleaning, painting, stuff like that. So I showed up at the house and one of the other employees showed up around the same time. I had never met this employee because usually there's nobody there on that day of the week and i didn't have a key to get in he had a key to get in so it was so awkward for me at first cuz i didn't realize that there was going to be anybody else that works there i was expecting to be alone there so i was uncomfortable anyway that he showed up but then it was like okay well this person's going to let me in so they let me in and then they tried to start a conversation but i to me i was like this interaction is over i needed to get in you let me in. I introduced myself. He introduced himself. And then he asked if I was going to be at the upcoming party that they were having at the practice. And I just looked him dead in the eyes and I was just like, no, probably not because I'm really not social. And then I just turned on my heels and walked away. And then after the fact, about five minutes later, it dawned on me. That was really fucking rude, but I didn't process that until five minutes after the fact, because to me, That was a transactional interaction. I needed to get in. He let me in. I introduced who I was so he didn't think I was a stranger. And then that was it. To me, there was nothing else after that. So then I was just really rude to him. But I guess he didn't take it too personally, because then he came and asked me some awkward question about a client who just wrote his name and masseuse on a check. And he was like, can we cash this? And I was like, I have no idea. So he must not have been too offended. but it did dead end it for a few minutes and he seemed pretty awkward when he approached me to ask me that question about the check. And it's probably because I was just like looking dead in the eyes and being like, no, I won't be at the party. Cause I'm not social, but <laughs> that's, that's how I interpret well, his interpretation. I don't know.
0: <laughs> at least that wasn't like intentional uh, in that instance. Anyway. I mean, I've had ones where it's like very intentional. Um, when I was first married, he was, he was military. He was um, a non-commissioned officer. So NCO. Um, not an officer. And his boss, who was an officer, which in the military means, you know, they need respect and all that, was very nice. She was a, a really nice person. And she was like, hey, you know, there's going to be a a spouse's meeting. You should come to the spouse's meeting, you know, and we'll connect. And I just kind of stopped what I was doing because I was, one, I was there to like drop off his lunch or something. I don't even remember. But again, it was something I was supposed to be doing. And I'm like, I would not even talking to you. So, why the fuck are you talking to me? Was like my first thing. Like, what gives you the right to address me? Because I don't know you. And I was just like, um, I work full time and I go to school full time, and I actually have a life in existence outside of my husband. So, no, thanks. And I just gave him his stuff and left. And and I got talked to by my husband at the time after that, because you're not really supposed to do that in the military and you know, diss people, even if you're just the spouse. But I was like, Psh bitch you don't know me (laughs) that's kind of how it came across in part because i was like i don't want to talk to you and i sure as hell don't want to have to be in a situation where i'm gonna have to talk to 18 other women no thank you (laughs) so yeah why does it Uh, always feel like
1: when we dead end conversations we do it in such a way that it's like demeaning to the other person i don't try for that like if i could just dead end the conversation when i wanted to without coming across as a pompous asshole I would choose that path instead, but that is just my natural go-to. And there have been so many people in my life that I have met who like, that I've worked with, that's the most common one where I've worked with them for a long time, months or even years. And I have barely spoken to them at all because I didn't see the point. And then they, or somebody else at some point would come up to me and be like, this person finds you really intimidating. And in my mind, I'm like, why the fuck would they find me intimidating? Oh, it's probably because I actively avoid conversations with them. And when they do try to speak to me, I come across as snarky. Oh shit. Yeah. That probably has an impact. Why I don't think about those things in the moment, because I think of myself as like the least intimidating person on the planet. I'm not an angry person. I don't go into a rage. I don't feel like I'm a dangerous person. I feel like I'm like a puppy growling at people when I do get angry. So I don't see myself as being intimidating, but so many people have thought of me as being intimidating or assumed that I did not like them when that was not the case. Because most of the time, when somebody approaches me about it and they're like, this person thinks that you don't like them. And I'm like, wait, who? And <laughs> it just, it doesn't dawn on me. Because it's like, but, because to me, my time is so precious to me and I really enjoy my, my time to myself and I spend a lot of time inside my head and I'm very selective about who I interact with and under what under what circumstances. Admittedly, I don't go in search of friends. So I don't always recognize when I make other people uncomfortable, that I don't always recognize when people think I don't like them because it does not occur to me that they would have any intera- any interest in interacting with me. Like I'm egocentric in that sense where I'm like, well, I don't enjoy social interactions. Why would anybody else enjoy social interactions? It does not occur to me that this person would talk to me because they're just interested in getting to know me. Because when, pers- when somebody talks to me a lot of times, my first thought is, what is your ulterior motive? What are you trying to get out of this? Because to me, it does not dawn on me that the average person would just want to interact socially for the sake of interacting.
0: Oh, I, I am totally the same way. And then, and, and I'm sure this is going to come across sounding like very sociopathic or cold and unhearted or whatever, but I have found being autistic spectrum, depending on the nature of the interaction, I also get into that, that kind of re, I guess you can call it of relevance. And so in my mind, this, is, this happens a lot at work, which is like 90% of my social interaction. I need to do X, Y, and Z. Your job is A, B, and C. And so in my mind, you are not relevant. Why would I interact with you? And so I just don't. And and I do end up dead-ending conversations. And I also end up just being very abrupt because of that, because I need to do X, Y, and Z. So if I see somebody that's in charge of X, I'm going to go up to them and be like, hey, did you get that thing with X done? That's it. I'm not going to be like, hey, how are your kids? What's going on? How you doing today? Because honestly, I don't give a fuck. I need X done because that's the nature of the transactional thing that's happening here. And, and I know that has turned a lot of people where they're like, oh, my God, she's really I, they call me intimidating. I think I'm just fucking rude is what that is, is what I've learned over the last few years. But they call it intimidating. And I think part of the reason both you and I are intimidating is because we did learn how to be that how to be the bullshitter how to pull stats out of your ass how to be the biggest baddest smartest person in the room and how to be that authority and honestly i think you, me, my, our brother, all of us, if we really wanted and had the energy and dedication could probably start a cult because we all have the ability to really sound like we know what we're talking about. And I know for me, that's just a defense mechanism. Again, it's me coming in feeling so uncomfortable and so out of control that I need to control the room and I need to have some safety. And so to create that safety, I take the control by being the authority and you look smarter, and you look like you know what's going on. And then the other person feels less. And all of a sudden, you've created this dynamic where other people want to please you, which is just insane to me. Because again, in my mind, I'm like, but I'm not relevant to you. Like, it's, it's not even just you're not relevant to me. But it's also like Ivy said, I'm not relevant to you. You know, you do ABC, I do XYZ. Why would you care about me? And then again, I don't socially interact. So why are you talking? That's just, unfathomable you know it's like you randomly stopped on the side of the road and you're getting out and jumping over the fence to have a conversation with a cow it's a little weird it's like why would you why would you do that you don't know that cow (laughs) why would you
1: talk to that cow i mean to be fair i would probably go and talk to a random cow before i'd go and talk to a random person i'd feel more comfortable doing that i i agree with you that like any one of us kids probably could have started a cult had we wanted to. Although like, I don't think I have particularly the same reason for why I come across as like being really knowledgeable or confident or whatever it is that you want to call it. I don't really have, at least not consciously, maybe there's some subconscious stuff there, but I don't consciously have the need to feel superior to other people, I, I think a lot of times the reason why people interpret me as being intimidating when I get into that, that mode of, I don't know, know it all, maybe, I don't know, that doesn't feel like the right word either. But when I get into that mode is because I just speak with a lot of conviction, because I have spent so many years inside my own head that I know what I believe in. And so when I'm talking to people about things that Do matter to me or that I feel passionate about, or whatever. I just speak with so much conviction. That doesn't always mean that I think that I'm right or that my answer is the be all end all. It's just the answer that makes sense to me. So I've found that, especially when I talk about things like my belief systems or things that have to do with mental health, a lot of times the things that I say that in my mind, I'm like, these are my opinions. Other people hear it and they're like, those are facts because you speak it with such conviction. And it's very hard for me to understand why people interpret it that way. Because like you were saying, in my mind, I'm thinking I am not relevant to you. I am sharing my opinion with you because we are conversing about this. It came up in conversation. And I feel passionately about this thing. I am sharing my opinion with you. I don't consider that to be a fact because I see reality as being very subjective. And pretty much everything can be Swayed. Facts are not always just that simple. Like there's always multiple sides to every story. So to me, when I do get the opportunity to interact with other people, and I can actually start a conversation and keep one flowing, I kind of fall into that where I speak with so much conviction because I wholeheartedly believe in this thing that people think start thinking of me as an authority, and then I get nervous about that, and sometimes I'll clam up because I realize that that's what's going on, and I'm like, but I'm not an authority. You should not listen to me i have no idea what i'm talking about this is just what's relevant for my life it's working for me but it might not necessarily work for you and then i start clamming up and being afraid of interacting with them further because i'm like i don't want you to rely on what i'm saying don't believe me (laughs) i don't know what i'm talking about i'm
0: floundering just like you are don't trust me i i think that's another definite symptom that goes out there too with the social anxiety is uh disclaimers with that because I even do that, like once I realize, oh, the person actually is giving credence to what I say, I, I start being worried about it because I'm like, oh, no, no, like I'm just puffing up. Don't don't think I'm this big normally. I am a blowfish. I'm just puffing up here. And, and with that, like I start like, oh, I read it, but, you know, I, I can't actually tell you the article I read it, or I don't remember the website, or I'm not actually sure if this is accurate. And, and I start giving lots of disclaimers. And I do think that's part of why the oh, and I'm autistic comes out a lot is because I feel like I have to explain why I'm so bad. And I'm like, oh, that's a convenient excuse. Just tell them. So that way they know, you know, you have an excuse to be fucked up and ridiculous and stupid in this interaction. It, I, I feel the need to put out disclaimers, whether it's disclaimers on my information or disclaimers on myself to be like, oh, I get that I'm like not good at this. I'm sorry. Here's why. Like I don't know if you ever feel that need, Ivy, to like apologize for yourself in the interaction. I constantly have felt
1: that need uh, to the point where a couple of my friends have teased me and referred to me as the queen of disclaimers, because I go into every social interaction with disclaimers first, which I did not realize and can realize can be off-putting to other people, because where other people are just like, man, I just I just wanted to talk about sports. But I come into the conversation being like, I will probably annoy the shit out of you. And these are all the things that I'm going to do that annoy the shit out of you. And this is why I'm like this. So please forgive me. And just, I'm sorry if I'm an asshole. But like people aren't looking for that because that's, it. I guess for most people, those are things that come out over time. But for me, because time is so precious to me, like I don't want to waste your time. You may not like me. I should give you all the reasons up front why you probably won't like me. So that that way you go in with, you know, you can make a well-informed decision and you're probably going to choose not to interact with me because I'm incredibly fucked up. And you should just know that in advance. I don't want to waste your time. I don't want you to waste my time. Let's just skip all of this. I'm going to tell you every horrible thing there is about me. Just so you know, you know,
0: heads up. And I think honestly, probably because, you know, the way we were raised and the way we think and how we are not very social. To me, that's like a very valid way to introduce into a, uh, into a social interaction. And it's also, in my mind, it's really polite. It's like, hello, you know, I have PTSD. I'm autistic. I often have difficulty with this, this, and this. And in the interaction, I will be blah, 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 blah. There. Now, do you wish to per- continue? Because in my mind, I'm like that. Thank you. Thank you for the data. No, I'm not interested in sports. And actually, that kind of annoys me. So it was great talking with you, but I'm not going to do it again. And I would love that. I would love if that's how life was. Because in my mind, that is so polite to just be like, here's my shit. Does it smell that bad to you? Or can you handle it? And then you go from there as opposed to like, oh, we've been talking. And then it's like four weeks later. And then I'm like, ah, fuck, this is kind of weird. But now I kind of know you. And now it's awkward. And it's like, you could have just told me to begin with. Like, it's polite, I think. I totally agree. Most other people don't seem to operate that way. And that will always
1: be bewildering to me because again time is precious so it's like but why would why would you want to waste my time why would you want me to waste your time like can we just just marinate in the uncomfortableness just long enough to figure out whether or not it's worth us even continuing this conversation. Because if all we're going to do is trigger the living shit out of each other, what is the point? I mean, there are some people that just, they like being around other people that they don't agree with because they enjoy debating, which is another thing that I absolutely hate. And that is one of the disclaimers I go into like almost right away. If something comes up that's a hot button issue, I'm just like, I don't like to debate. I'm going to exit this now. I don't, I don't want to argue. I don't want to debate. This is not fun for me. And then
0: I'll just leave. All right. So before we move on, because we're going to be talking about kind of what drives the anxiety next, I was kind of looking over our notes on the mental symptoms and I noticed the words beef jerky calves. And I was wondering Ivy, if you could speak to what that is because I'm pretty sure that's not my note. And I didn't want to like leave that on left before we left the mental symptom category. Well, I mean, I don't know. I don't really feel like it was that
1: important, but I do remember what that's in reference to. Cause we were talking when we originally put together these notes last weekend or the weekend before, whenever we did it, we were talking about not having a filter and just things flying out of your mouth before you have time to really think about them at all. And because I feel because I, my brain freezes up in social interactions and I feel a pressure to respond quickly. I don't always, put a lot of thought into how I'm going to say something and how that one came up is that I had, I had a client who is very athletic of those people who's always on the move. And I was working on his legs and he asked me how his calves felt. And my first thought was, well, they feel like beef jerky. And I said, well, they feel like beef jerky. And he laughed, but I think he was also partially offended by it because his wife is also one of my clients. And a few weeks later, she jokingly brought it up during session while I was working on her calves and she was like, so my husband tells me that his calves feel like beef jerky. Do mine feel like beef jerky? And then I realized (laughs) this was probably a bad move on my part. I should probably think more carefully about how I explain these things. Also, he was probably asking, really what he was probably asking was, do my calves feel tight? But he just asked what do my calves feel like? And my brain thought they feel like beef jerky. So that's what I said. And they still bring it up every once in a while to this day that I compared his calves to beef jerky. And I feel like an asshole every single time.
0: <laughs> I'm kind of glad that I asked about that because I do feel like that is one more, I, I don't know, something that ties into all of this, which is it's you don't have a filter, one. And for me, too is I say things not understanding they're not appropriate. And I don't understand that something is inappropriate until somebody looks at me and i get that look and i finally learned it and i'm like that was apparently inappropriate i should not have said that there's nothing in my head that says do you think that would be okay to say no it just is you just say it and then as soon as i say it, i get the look everybody knows the look i would think right now it's just that kind of weird freeze up kind of judgmental a little squinty eyed, and i'm like oh that that was that was inappropriate let's cross that off of future interaction lists So let's move into what drives anxiety. So there's a lot of different things that really can go into social anxiety, a lot of reasons that you feel socially anxious. And so we're just going to kind of go over some of, you know, what drives a person's typical social anxiety? Why do you feel this way? One of the very first ones we want to talk about was being a fish out of water. Just the idea of being somewhere where you feel like you don't belong. Um, A big one for me used to be bars, it still kind of is. Um, I didn't drink forever. And like my friends, when friend, I guess at the time had a party or whatever, she'd always have it at a bar. And I always felt like totally out of water because I didn't understand any of this. I, I, I didn't drink. I wasn't interested in being around alcohol. It was loud and I hate loud noise. And so I definitely felt like a fish out of water. I felt like that a lot growing up where we did, it was kind of the Bible Belt. And while we were still Christian, we were Mormon, and that wasn't really normative where we were at, and it was really weird, and it kind of had those like, oh, so you have multiple wives, and you sacrifice babies, or whatever. It was a lot of weird things about Mormons. And so you also, again, you felt like a fish out of water. You felt like like you just didn't belong, and having that sense of not belonging, I think definitely drives the anxiety.
1: It can also have much more serious implications than that, because you're Your awareness of being different is not just about whether you don't fit into a a particular social scenario that you're in. You may just be part of a group that is generally ostracized by society, and that can be incredibly nerve-wracking, not just from a, a typical social anxiety standpoint, but because of real fears for safety and being accepted in any sort of meaningful way. Uh, for instance, if you are trans or you're, you're just part of the LGBT community in general, or LGBTQIA, I think that was the most recent thing that I saw. But being part of that community can feel very ostracizing from mainstream society. It's starting to get better, but we still have a long way to go. And I feel like we especially have a really long way to go for people who are trans, because even there are, certain, there are some people even within the LGBTQ that have kind of issues with people who are trans. So that can be not only being ostracized from mainstream society, but also ostracized from a group of people that you had hoped that you would be able to connect with. I mean, and with COVID, all the stuff that's going on right now, there's been a huge increase in crimes against Asian people because of this idea that... You know, China is responsible for COVID and Asian people made this happen. And so that's, I mean, that's another way that just like being different can give you other reasons to
0: be anxious than just your typical social anxiety. And with that, you know, when, when we talked about the DSM and part of like the anxiety and the fear that comes with that, it was all, there's not really a real reason for it. But when we're talking about this of being part of an ostracized group and knowing that you're ostracized, this is a real fear. Um, There are still places where trans people or Muslim people or just other people that are ostracized are physically harmed. They are beaten to a pulp. They are dragged behind trucks. They are hurt. They are killed. And that is, that's an honest to God fear. And You know, a lot of people want to think, oh, we're so enlightened, especially if you like live in certain cities or certain areas. But there are a lot of corners of the US, you know, some of them rural, some of them very urban, where being the wrong group, being the wrong crowd is detrimental to your health. I mean, I remember, again, my first husband, I met him when I I lived out in the boondocks of Missouri, Um, it was a little 200 person town. And he is what six foot 250 pure muscle you know just would like curl 100 pound weights just big black guy very confident you know 20 years in the military very much confident in himself and he didn't have a lot of anxiety but it made him bloody nervous to drive out and visit me where i lived because it was the middle of nowhere and he was black and i don't think there was another black person in a tri-county area and a lot of people like oh but that's so far ago no it wasn't because people in those rural areas were still persecuting, hurting, harming, and sometimes killing individuals that were Black or different in some way in those communities. So in that case, yeah, it's scary. And so sometimes when you know you're different, it increases that anxiety or it puts in that fear, and it's not, you know, all in your head. It's a reality thing, or you don't know if it's a reality because there are those corners and you never know where they're going to be. There's one little rural town that's like super accepting of everybody and it's great. And then the little town next door is still lynching people. So you don't know. And so when you are definitely from a different group, you do have that fear. And I feel like that's a very valid fear until you understand the world you're in. And, and I mean, taking it back from that kind of extreme death and physical harm, even just general acceptance of other people. You know, if you're mentally ill or you have a criminal record, you know you are different than those around you, and you know that you may be discriminated against. You know that this can create awkward situations or even remove resources from you. You know, in certain branches of the military at certain levels, if you get diagnosed with a specific mental illness, you can't advance further because it'll mess up your security clearance. The same way if you want to be a pilot, if you get diagnosed with a certain mental illness, That could potentially dead end your career because for safety reasons, they will not allow individuals with certain mental illnesses to do that. And then again, with criminal records, there's a lot of businesses that will not hire you if you have a criminal record. They don't really care the reason. They don't care what happened. They don't want to hear the story. They just say, oh, you're a felon, not hiring you, end. And that's really scary when you go in because you're like, OK, even in this transactional interaction where I'm just looking for a job or I'm just looking for a resource or whatever this is, it's super anxiety provoking because you don't know if you're going to be able to get that. That makes it very difficult. But even outside of the context of uh,
1: the criminal record, and even outside of the context of having a mental illness that can can lead you to be discriminated against having certain handicaps. If you have a noticeable physical handicap, that is can interfere in you getting a job, but it's also going to a lot of times change the way that people treat you or respond to you. You For instance, somebody with down syndrome, because everybody recognizes those specific characteristics, the physical characteristics that go with being down syndrome, there are people who may see that you have Down syndrome and they just won't talk to you at all. Or they may even be mean to you and they're making all these assumptions about who you are as a person because you have Down syndrome. So there are so many scenarios in which social anxiety may come not because you would normally be socially anxious, but because you are part of a group of people that is so ostracized either by society at large or by the specific community that you're in, that it makes it very difficult for you to have not just enjoyable social interactions, but even safe social interactions. That's a whole nother level of anxiety to add on. Even the most extroverted of people can still end up having intense anxiety because they are part of a a marginalized group that is treated very poorly.
0: And I think with that too, especially with those individuals that are maybe on paper accepted by society, but socially in the interaction, they're not really because people don't know how to deal with it. I feel like they're not only dealing with their anxiety, they have to deal with the other person's anxiety. So if you are the only Black person in a white community, if you do have Down syndrome and those around you don't, you know that this is possibly going to be awkward. You know this is possibly going to be an issue. So now you have your anxiety from knowing that, yes, I am very different than everybody around me and this could be a problem. And you also know that other people may feel awkward interacting with you. You know, if you are in a wheelchair, people sometimes, they don't know what to say, they don't know what to do, they don't know like, do I squat down, do I stand up, what do I do, am I allowed to touch the chair, do I not? They don't know, and so they freeze up in their own anxiety And so now as this person, you're different. You're having to deal with your own anxiety of dealing with this larger crowd. And you're also having to put the other person's anxiety at ease, too, to be like, okay, let me educate you a little. Let me tell you about this. Let me help break up your fear. And I do think that's why you see a lot of comedians or comedic relief around some of this that kind of make those jokes about it. And and that's their way of trying to make it easier for others. Sometimes these differences aren't even like big or huge. They're not even something visible. Sometimes it's things like you just have interests that don't fit with society. Maybe you, for whatever reason, are super interested in dinosaurs. You love them. And that's not your career. Maybe you're an accountant, but you just love it. Or World War history. Uh, There's a lot of people out there just really interested in the Civil War, the World War. And this is what you love to do with your time. And it's awesome but you know when you go to the in-laws, nobody cares about it. So this burning passion you have inside, this great interest, isn't going to fit with others. And since that's all you do, you be an accountant, which is kind of boring and nobody wants to hear about, and you're super into civil war, which you love, but nobody wants to hear about, and you go to the in-laws, you're like, well, what do you have left to talk about? It's kind of anxiety-provoking because you don't have anything left. And Ivy and I even kind of talked about that before with the personal trauma, how she was saying. This is what we did all of our lives. You know, we, we worked to survive and we dealt with our personal trauma and we dealt with our personal issues. And so when you end up going to the in-laws or you end up trying to have an interaction with somebody, that's all you have to talk about. And you know it's not going to fit in. You're going into this normative environment talking about abuse and things and they're just looking at you. But what else do you have to talk about? Well, I, I got groceries today. <laughs> it's kind of hard. Along those those lines of
1: having intense interest that can sometimes set you apart from other people in ways that can cause some uncomfortable social situations. My first husband was really, really into RPG games. He played a lot of Dungeons and Dragons and Vampire the Masquerade and like all of these tabletop RPG games and all of his friends were also into those things. And it was like their whole world. Like they would create these these worlds when they would play their RPG games and they would be at it for hours and like that dominated the dynamic of the entire friend group. But then trying to interact with people outside of that friend group could be sometimes uncomfortable or awkward because your entire life in a lot of ways, and for my first husband, this was especially the case, was so dominated by these games that he would play that it was like he was living in a fantasy world most of the time. And that made it very difficult in some ways for him to interact with other people who are not into those things because it was such a big part of his personality. It was such a huge interest for him. He spent pretty much all of his free time doing that. And if you're one of those people who's into the live action role-playing games, where you even dress up and you go out into, you know, parks with a bunch of other people and you're, you know, having these these battles that can create some uncomfortable social situations for you too because random people walking by are going to be like why are there a bunch of grown men dressed in armor made out of trash cans fighting with swords made out of pipes it's not saying that those things are bad i'm not saying that at all i have had tons of friends i've known tons of people who are into that stuff it's not my it's not my cup of tea but there are tons of people i know who are into it but it it does set you apart from other way from from other people in ways that are incredibly incredibly uh, noticeable. Same thing with cosplaying. I've got some friends who are really into cosplaying and they make some really amazing outfits and they go to conventions and they do all that stuff, but they also just go to the coffee shop that way. You're going to get a lot of looks and some people will be interested in it, at least curious about it in ways that are um, not aggressive or confrontational, but some people are going to look at it and be like you're a grown adult like act like it why are you dressing up like that why are you playing these games you should be putting your time towards better things and so you face a lot of judgment from these people just because you're deeply interested in this thing that consumes a large part of who you are because you give yourself over to it wholeheartedly and it doesn't make it bad as long as you're able to you know, maintain your other responsibilities, take care of yourself, take care of your family, maintain a job, do all of those things so that you can still function and still survive in society. It's fine. And it's great to have those interests, but and that can cause some social awkwardness for you. If you're out there in the world dressed as a furry and the rest of people are just kind of like looking at you like this person's insane, what are you doing? Why are you dressed up like a fox? Like, why would you do that? You're going to have to deal with some of that discrimination just because most other people are not going to understand this intense interest you have in something that's so niche.
0: It is. It's such a a huge thing and it really is consuming and it takes up so much of your life and you don't have time for anything else. And it's not that you don't want to interact with the in-laws or you don't want to be able to fit in at the work party. It's just you don't have a leg to stand on. And I think that not only happens with like things that we choose, you know, and things that kind of define our life. But I think that can also happen with transitory things that maybe step into our life. So, you know, if if you've recently experienced a death, that's kind of all consuming for you. And maybe you are one of those people and you care about others and you want that holiday party to be happy, but you're so consumed with grief. You know, you're just like, how do you even interact with that? You know, or even with me, I get, I have very obsessive thinking with certain things and it's very hard for me to switch rails. And so when my cat was starting to go downhill, that was all I was. I was looking up pancreatitis. I was looking up IBS. I was monitoring my cat's bowel movements on a regular basis. I think 60% of the conversation I had with my boyfriend at the time was about my cat's poop. And, And that's what I was consumed with because I was so worried about her health. And that's, I didn't even know what to talk about to other people. So when I would have an interaction or somebody would call, I wouldn't know what to say to them. And I'd feel bad because I want to get out of my head and I'd want to stop obsessing over what's happening with my cat and just have a free free minute. But my mind was just so locked into this worry or locked into this concern that I couldn't. And that happens. You just get something all-consuming and that all-consuming doesn't fit with whatever else is going on in society or in the group you have, and you do get anxiety from it, and you do get social fear because what are you supposed to say? You can't come up with anything that you know matches what others what others are going through.
1: Uh, along those lines of having these these things that we're really intensely focused on you know, that we're really intensely interested in, another thing that that branches into that can lead to some social anxiety and some uncomfortable social social situations, is if you are part of a group of people that has some very unpopular belief systems, or you're into things that most other people, they just don't take seriously, like people who are really into Sasquatch, where you are just convinced that Bigfoot is real and you need to find it and there' are people that makes that there are people that make that like their life's mission or they're just so into it, or they're so into aliens or anything along those lines that that a lot of people look at and it's like, oh, that's just a myth. Oh, that's not real. Why are you spending your time doing that and you kind of get labeled as crazy like people look at you and they're like, why would you believe in Bigfoot? Like there's no evidence that that exists or you know why are you? thinking about, you know, reptilians and you're all into the the alien talk and alien abduction and that stuff's not real. Even if aliens do exist, there's no way they've reached us by now or whatever. Like a lot of those ideas that people have that they just accept as fact because it's the mainstream belief. They're, they're going to be looking at somebody who is into those things and thinking, well, that's really weird. And I'm pretty sure you're crazy. I mean, I saw that too in like the new age community when I was really into that, there are tons of people in that community that truly believe that they are channeling these deities or these angels that they are channeling Jesus Christ or they're channeling Archangel Michael or whatever that Is going to get you labeled as crazy or weird or woo-woo by people who are outside of that who are not part of the new age community anytime that you are part of a community with these deeply held beliefs that go contrary to what society thinks as a whole that's going to create some social issues for you at some point especially if you're somebody who believes deeply in these things and you want to share these things and it's important to you to to tell people these these messages that you're getting from Archangel Michael, or you wanna tell people that no, you have found Sasquatch, you know that, it, that Sasquatch exists and people need to know about it. Or you believe that you know, the alien disclosure is coming and we're all gonna to be told about it and there's this government conspiracy to cover it up right now, but at some point soon, we're all gonna know about it. You feel these things really passionately and it matters a lot to you. And so you wanna tell people because you feel it's imperative for them to know those things. That's going to create some uncomfortable social situations for you. And some people don't care. Some people are oblivious. But if you're somebody who feels those things very passionately and you feel like it's important for other people to know them and you want to tell them but you know you're going to sound crazy, well, you're going to feel some anxiety about sharing these ideas with people. You can try to bluff and say, oh, I don't feel anxious about it at all. But more than likely, unless you're completely oblivious or you just don't care at all about how other people perceive you, I mean, if for no other reason you want people to believe these things because they're important to you, you're going to feel some anxiety about sharing your ideas and your thoughts with somebody who is almost definitely not going to agree with them or not going to believe the same things that you believe.
0: And that can be true of even more, I guess, if you want to call it normative or more widely accepted beliefs, because I feel like Christianity is is a very widely accepted belief in this country, But look at Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormon's Missionaries. Both groups very, very much believe in their doctrine, and both groups very, very much want to share it because it's so important to them. And in their mind, they're sharing it to help save you and to help you in your life and in your afterlife. But most people don't want to hear it. Most people don't want people knocking on their door talking to them about Jesus. So even a widely accepted belief, when you channel it in a certain way, it can cause a lot of anxiety because you're trying to convert you're trying to basically do that bring it up it advocate for it and with that too i feel that goes beyond that specific social situation you know so i knew a person that i worked with that really believed in i think it's like the flat earth concept and again like ivy i'm not commenting on that we don't do politics in the show it's irrelevant whether i not believe in it or not the reality was is he did and when people found out he did they mocked him and not like directly and haha laughing, but they would write him off because he believed in flat earth and other people didn't. They would write him off as like, oh, he doesn't know what he's talking about in anything. And it carried over. So if you have that one strong belief or you have that one strong interest and it does engender that judgment, it's not always just stuck in that situation where it comes up. It goes into all parts of your life. And we talked a little bit about obviously noticeable differences as well, but sometimes these can, again, just not appearing appropriate to expectations. So I, I buzz cut my hair, not because I necessarily want to, or like the way it looks. I just, it's the easiest thing for me to do both with my sensory issues and living off grid. It's just easy not to have hair, but I know going into certain situations, that's an issue and it does get brought up and there is some judgment about that. And people kind of look at me weird because I've got a guy's haircut and not just a guy's haircut. I have a poor guy's haircut because it really looks like somebody just took some clippers at home and cut it off because that's what we did because it's cheap and it's easy. But because I don't meet those expectations of society, you know, I don't have the long hair. I also don't wear any makeup. Um, I usually dress in guys clothes because, again, I'm living off grid. I don't want my fancy skirt getting mud and gunk all over it. So I'm wearing guys jeans and I'm wearing guys shirts because they're sturdier. Well, I look very much like I'm trying to be male or I'm trying to be transgender or something. I'm not. I'm happy being a woman. I just this is what works for me. But I still I don't meet societal expectations. I know I don't meet societal expectations. So when I step into a group that I know that those are important for, you know, I'm going to meet, you know, if there's going to be a group of women and all these women have, you know, nice hair and they've got the makeup and they've got the pretty clothes, I feel really intimidated. You know, maybe they'll be nice to me. I don't know. But at the same point, I know I don't fit in here. I I know I'm going to have difficulty relating. I know they're going to notice this and see this about me. And so even some of these differences, just where you're not meeting that expectation of society can cause social anxiety for you. And, and I think that really covers that topic of just that idea of when you are different, when you're different and you know it. Because if you have awareness, you know you're different. And when you know you're different, you know you're going to encounter things, whether it be judgment, whether it be discrimination, whether it be looks, whether it be having to explain yourself or educate yourself, you know you're going to have to do that. And so it does create some potential anxiety. And it kind of ties in because and sometimes it does create that fear. And and I think that's another thing that can drive the social anxiety is the fear of others. And that can be on that, you know, that very specific scale, like we talked about with very specific discrimination, or it can be just, you know, the large scale sense of fear. So we definitely, as everybody has termed it, we live in a rape culture for women. If I'm in a bar and a man were to approach me, I would feel anxious. I would feel nervous. You know, a lot of women have taken to covering their drinks when they're out and about because they're scared of being roofied. That's social anxiety. You have anxiety in a social area because you're afraid of other people. And even away from the the, the female specific thing, just news. Turn it on. How many positive things are there? Very, very few. What you see is all the bad, big, scary things. Who got shot? Who got robbed? Who got stabbed? Who got raped? What serial killer is loose? Fear, 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 fear is just fed to us on a regular basis. So you get fear, 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 fear. And then you're just supposed to go out and interact with all these people that you see on the news that are causing all these horrible things. Well, that's, that's going to cause some anxiety and it's going to cause some issues in your social interactions. Along with the, that fear on somewhat more of a broad scale, where I live at now, I live
1: kind of on the outskirts of Seattle. And when I first moved here, I really loved Seattle. That's why I moved here because I had visited once and it was a beautiful city and it was so clean and it was just, it was beautiful. And I love the culture of Seattle. You could not pay me enough to go into downtown Seattle now. It has become very dangerous. The crime rates are going up. There is a massive homelessness issue that has gotten way out of control lots of people with mental health problems lots of people with drug issues that has you know led to some violent behavior definitely a lot of criminal behavior but also violent behavior i am not saying that every homeless person is violent please do not do not take it that way but when you have a city that has an out of control population of homeless people, there is going to be a certain percentage of that population that is homeless because they have either a violent history where they've been in and out of prison or they have mental health problems that make them unpredictable or they have a drug problem that make them unpredictable. The city of Seattle now is nothing like what it looked like when I first moved here. This city has become so Scary to me that it has increased my mistrust of people overall. So a lot of my social interactions now are not just me being Generally socially nervous. It's me being fearful of people that I may not have been fearful of in the past when I lived in Oklahoma for a while I worked at the jail and I worked in booking and I got to know a lot of the people there who were homeless and I was never afraid of them here I am fearful of every person that I pass that looks like they are a transient because I just don't know. I don't know if they're going to be violent or not. And I'm very fearful of them. I don't interact with the homeless the way that I used to when I lived in Oklahoma because I am genuinely frightened of many of the ones here because it's just so unpredictable and there's so many of them and there has been such an increase in crime rates and violence. That's fucking terrifying to me. I have way more social anxiety and I'm way
0: more fearful of
1: people overall because of where I live.
0: And that's just, that's large scale stuff. Like you see these big things on the news, you see these reports, or sometimes you even see stuff out your own window that, that indicates you should be fearful in interactions. And that's going to drive anxiety if you do have to go somewhere and interact with people that you've been shown and told to be afraid of. And I think this can also reflect, though, on a very much more micro scale, on a personal scale. Even if you live in a super safe neighborhood and you never watch the news, some of us have come from very traumatic homes or we've been bullied or we've been abused. And in those cases, you fear others for a very personal and real reason. You know, if you went through a super bad bullying experience when you were in school... You're likely gonna have a lot of fear and anxiety when you try to start up a new interaction with somebody. If you've not processed that yet, or you've not been able to deal with it yet, or possibly even if you have started processing it, you have been shown directly in your past and taught that when you reach out, you will be met with violence. And it's the same way when you come from a traumatic home. You know, if if you've got that trauma there, something happened that set off your fear response to a degree that you thought you were gonna die. And so that usually happens in the context of a relationship. And so when you go to seek out another relationship, you have so much fear in your background about what this means, about being met with violence, and that's the expectation. Well, you're going to have that. You know, I give the very the very simple example of, let's say you walk out your front door, and every time you walk out your front door, you get slapped, every time. Well, aren't you going to eventually expect to be slapped when you walk out your front door? That would be what you would think. And you would start taking precautions to make sure you don't get slapped or to deal with the person that's slapping you. Well, that's what happens when you come from that bullying background or you come from that traumatic home. Every time you reached out significantly, there was the potential for violence. There was the potential that you were going to get hurt. And so now when you go into a new social interaction, it's not like you can just be like, oh, well, I'm safe now. It's okay. It doesn't work that way. That trauma is still there. And so you do have a lot of fear. And so that fear of others can definitely, definitely be a big factor in, in creating social anxiety. When we're talking about traumatic homes,
1: is there some level of abuse that's going on? And in most abusive situations, if not all abusive situations, there's a degree of social isolation. So if you are being intentionally isolated from the rest of the world, that's also going to contribute to whether or not you have social anxiety. And that's especially true if you grew up in a home where there was a lot of abuse and a lot of isolation, because you never even develop the social skills necessary to just have normal interactions with people. Especially if part of the manipulation of your abuser was to make you fearful of other people, that other people were always a threat, that other people were going to hurt you, because a lot of abusers do that. They try to manipulate you into thinking that they're the only person that could care about you, they're the only person that can protect you, and the world outside is threatening, and other people are horrible, and the only way that you can be safe is if you stay away from other people and stay with your abuser that's, that's how, how that isolation happens. And if you are isolated, you either didn't develop those social skills or you've now been beaten down so much that you can be brainwashed into thinking that everybody else is a threat, or you're just afraid to interact with other people because you're afraid of what your abuser might do, like all of those things Interfere in your ability to just have normal, healthy interactions with other people. Maybe you never learned the social skills at all, or maybe your social skills have now been hindered because of the situation that you find yourself in. And now there's, there's no safe social interaction for you at all. You're not safe at home, but you're also not safe with other
0: people and it can make you feel very, very alone. And when you talk about social skills, I mean, that's not even just if you came from a dysfunctional family, if you were socially isolated at all, like you had no siblings or peers, or you were homeschooled. I mean, those aren't necessarily traumatic things at all. Those are perfectly fine and can actually be very healthy for you. But you may have never had the opportunity to actually socialize with others. And if you don't ever have the opportunity to socialize, how are you supposed to develop social skills? It's something you kind of have to practice. Um, Also, if you were only exposed to certain, certain populations, you know, if you're Came from a, an area that was like a family that was very, very, very religious, and you only ever went and talked with individuals that went to that religious school and that went to those religious church services. You only know how to socially interact within that framework. And so when you have to step outside of that, or you choose to step outside of that for work or a relationship or whatever it happens to be you don't necessarily know the rules of this new social interaction because how you happen to interact in that religion or in that culture or in that neighborhood, if that was all you're ever exposed to, it may not be how you interact anywhere else. And when you don't have those social skills, sometimes you don't know, but a lot of times you do. A lot of times we have enough awareness that we can be like, I don't, I don't understand what I'm doing here. And that's a lot of anxiety when you don't know how to do something. I mean, Could you imagine going to a piano recital and, you know, there's all these 20 people in the audience waiting for you to play and you don't know how to play the piano? Well, you're going into a social interaction and you don't know how to do it. You don't know the rules. You don't know the the things to say and the things not to say and how much eye contact to make. It's, It's very anxiety provoking when you don't have social skills, when you never learned them. That goes into social scripts. Because
1: part of social skills is understanding the social script for what you're, for the scenario that you find yourself in. And if you can't kind of initiate conversation, you can't initiate a a interaction with somebody that's normative to that situation, that's going to cause a lot of anxiety for you as well. Maybe you can initiate it, but you can't maintain it. That's one of the issues that I have personally. I, I don't do well really in any social situation. Uh, I'm pretty awkward in all of them. I cannot initiate conversations to save my life. Uh, And even once a conversation gets started, it's very difficult for me to maintain it because I get lost and I start overthinking things as well. Because going back to kind of some of the things we talked about before, I naturally want to go in with disclaimers and I naturally go in with oversharing. That does not fit most people's social scripts, but that is what I know. But I also don't know what to replace it with so I don't I don't do well with most social situations because I don't really understand what's expected of me and I don't know how to talk the talk it's like trying to it's like trying to learn a complex language as an adult you've never heard it before you're trying to learn it you have no idea what the fuck anybody is saying ever it's like a coded conversation from a spy film, and you don't know how to respond to people because there's they're talking in in phrases. Even if it's words you understand, they're talking in phrases that make absolutely no sense. And using that that spy analogy, we'll kind of do like a, a quick dialogue here to give you an example of like what it feels like for for us, Autumn and I, both when we we're trying to have small talk with people because we just don't understand it. So I will be spy number one. Autumn
0: will be spy number two. Why, hello. The bird arrives at dawn. Yes, yes, the door is partially moist. Mm-hmm. Pants are funnier than oatmeal though. Mm. Trees dance across the battlefield. Yes, the war is lost. That is what social
1: like social situations feel like to me and to Autumn. <laughs> everybody sounds like they're talking in some weird fucking dialect or some weird coded language that makes no sense. And it's really hard to immerse ourselves in it to understand it because it's like, I don't know what you're referring to. I don't know what's supposed to come next. And I feel like no matter what I say, it's going to be wrong. Can I just go back to my disclaimers and telling you about my
0: childhood trauma? Because that's my happy place. I, I, that is what, what we just did. That is exactly what small talk sounds like to me. And part of that Is my autism. And part of that is us being socially isolated. And part of that is me just never really having a chance to practice social skills. But for me, it's super frustrating because I feel like I understand the language. Like I'm high functioning enough and I've studied enough that I understand the words and I see what people are saying. But it's very much like that spy code movie that I'm just like, but I don't know what you're trying to say. You know, when you come at me with the bird arrives at dawn or How about those bears? Or it looks like it might rain today. It's all the same equivalent to me. I have no idea what you mean by this. What do you want from me? What is the appropriate response to this? I don't know. So, yes, I get that they're words and I can understand that they're words and I can understand that you are expecting something from me. I don't know what it is and I don't know what you want. And it makes me so anxious. (laughs) I, I hate small talk for that reason because that's all it is. It's all these coded messages. It's a script that when they were handing out the script book, I sure as hell didn't get a copy of it. So I have no idea what I'm supposed to say here. And, and I've talked about this before with Ivy. Like a lot of people think I'm really funny. They're like laughing at all this stuff. I don't think I'm funny. I am saying things seriously and what I think seriously And it's so avant-garde and it's so out of the way and it's so off script. People think I'm joking and they think I'm trying to be funny or it makes them uncomfortable enough they find it humorous or it doesn't fit enough that they're humorous. So a lot of people think, oh, Autumn, she's funny and she has a sense of humor. I don't in my head. I'm not trying to be funny. I'm just saying shit that seems appropriate to me. And it's so inappropriate that people are like, that's hilarious. And I'm like, is it? Okay, I'll roll with that. Sure, I'm funny, not just awkward here. Unfortunately, people don't think I'm
1: funny, mostly because I'm not funny, but I do, the main thing I struggle with, with the small talk is again, that like, how the fuck am I supposed to maintain this? Okay. So you initiated a conversation with something that to me is like a statement or that requires one quick response. If you approach me with, Hey, it looks like it's going to rain today. I'm going to look at the sky and be like, yep. Yep does look like it's gonna rain today. But if you don't say anything after that, but you're still looking at me like you expect something from me, well, I don't know what comes next because I thought we were talking about the weather. We did that. I don't know what comes next. Where would you like me to go from there? I can't maintain things because I don't know how to like take it from one subject to the next subject, unless we start out by talking about something that I already know a lot about and most of what i know a lot about is trauma and mental health and things along those lines that most other people are not going to want to talk about so i don't know what to do in those situations because even if i understand the first part of things even if i understand like the first line of that spy language and i can respond to that appropriately like okay what what next i i can't move on from this spot without just walking away it's like I associate it with um, when I had my dog Henry. He sucked at social things too, probably because I sucked at social things and therefore did not socialize him with other dogs. When I would take him to the off leash dog park and I'd take him off a leash and he would be running around and having the time of his life sniffing things and licking stuff and whatever it is that dogs do, other dogs would approach him and would attempt to play with him. And his ears would perk up and his tail would go up and he would sniff at them slightly and then he would do this thing where he would kind of like full body hop a couple of times to one side and then a couple of times to the other side and then he would abruptly lose interest and then he would just wander off and go start eating grass or something. Cause it was like, okay, well, I I get that there's this other dog and they're showing interest in me, I will show interest in this other dog but then he wouldn't know what to do after that. He didn't know how to play. He didn't know how to, how to interact with them. So he would sniff them and then he'd be like, okay, we're done here. And I feel like that's what, <laughs> that's what I do in social situations. I am the equivalent of, of just like, you know, I just, I sniffed you. Yep, you're a human don't know what to do with you now I'm gonna go eat grass like I feel like my dog all the time in every social situation because I mean that's what that's what it is when I go off to pee that's my equivalent of eating grass I'm like I don't know what's expected of me now I acknowledge that you exist
0: I think it's also quite literally sometimes you go off to pee just like the dog would go off to pee like he didn't know what else to do so he's like I'm gonna pee on this so maybe it's just like you need to start peeing on things instead of like in the toilet just (laughs) <laughs> actually that might make it more awkward yeah, just
1: that. it probably would make it more awkward I don't think I should be taking any pages from Henry's playbook on that because there were a couple of times that his response to his own social anxiety would be to pee on the other dog so I don't think I should just go around peeing on people I mean some people are into that but I don't think that's how I want to start any interaction with another person and if I just peed on some random person I barely knew and they were into it I would be a little disturbed by that personally, if that's your thing, that's all on you. But uh, I I would feel pretty uncomfortable in that situation for sure. I would rather talk about childhood trauma or bowel movements than
0: pee on random people. That's just me though, to each their own. So I'm gonna take the dog and segue that um, back into one of the other things that, uh, that drive our social anxiety. And so my dog, it wasn't with all other dogs, it was with Huskies. So he was, uh, we're pretty sure he was a German Shepherd Border Collie mix. And he fucking loved huskies. He was in love with them. So if we would go to the bark park, any other dog didn't care. But if a couple, three huskies showed up, he was desperate for their attention. He would follow them around. He would try to kick dirt. He would try to interest them. And a lot of the huskies would often come in like three or four and they were a group of huskies and huskies are kind of elitist bitches. (laughs) I love them, but they are. And so they would kind of look at him and be like, you are not a husky. We shall not deign to play with you today. And he would always be so sad. And I think that is very accurate for a lot of us too. And what drives us is we want to belong. We have a a specific group, or maybe it's just the whole group of humanity. And we want to belong. We want to feel like we belong somewhere, like we're accepted. We want to feel connected with other people. And sometimes we just don't. Maybe the group we're seeking out, like the Huskies, are elitist bitches, and the likelihood of acceptance is low. Sometimes it's because we don't know what we need to do to belong, and sometimes we're just off, and we we don't even know why. But we need to belong, and we know that that is one a very important need for us. So it makes us very stressed out that we need to get this need met, and two. Some of us are aware that we don't belong easily, or maybe we are accepted, but only the mask of us is accepted, not the true self of us is accepted. And that makes you fearful and anxious in social situations because if you say the wrong thing, you're not going to belong. If you say the wrong thing, they're going to see through that mask and you're not going to have that connection anymore. And so I feel like that intense need to belong can also drive social anxiety a lot. And for me, like like I've said a thousand times now, because apparently I just need to keep repeating this, I am autistic spectrum. And I don't really care about interacting that much with other human beings. I just, I don't need it as much. But I get sometimes so desperate To not be an alien, because that's what it feels like for me. I feel like I am not a human being. I am some other species because I see what humans do and I see how humans act and I see what, you know, the way that humans are. And I look at myself and I'm like, there's no way that I could be human. Because I am so very, very, very different from that. I am a different species. I'm a different entity. I don't even think I'm from this planet. And so I very much feel alien. And this isn't a psychotic break where I think I'm honestly an alien. This is how I feel. And for the most part, I deal with it okay. and, And I'm able to make these small connections. But even in my intimate relationships, I don't ever really fully feel known or understood. And sometimes that is so sad and so depressing for me. And I just want desperately to have a small group, a small band that would honestly see me and would love me and that I would feel connected to and that that connection was real. And so I love shows like Fruits Basket and Firefly, where you have all these quirky people that are so different and so unique, and they all have their own mental health struggles, but somehow they come together and each of them are appreciated for their own thing. And there's this connection and there's this family kind of unit. And I, I am so jealous of that. I'm so jealous of the idea of belonging. And I don't think I have honestly ever felt that. I felt it, you know, with a specific person. Like I feel like a sense of belonging for the most part with my boyfriend. And I feel a sense of belonging for the most part with my sister. But I have never once in my life felt that in a group. I have never felt like I've belonged. And even when people think they're accepting me, They're like, oh, that's just autumn. That's the way autumn is. And it's this thing that autumn is different. Oh, autumn says funny things because she doesn't understand. Oh, autumn says that because, oh, that's just, I don't want to be just autumn. I don't want to be this exception to the rule. I just want to be part of the group. And when I honestly care about a social interaction and I honestly want to make a friend, I get so overwhelmed with trying to do that because that need is so strong in me sometimes that I just, but I want, I, I just want to belong. I just want to connect. I want to feel like a human being and I never do in a group. And so I get a lot of anxiety from that. I think I I kind of knew
1: that about you, but I don't even think I realized to what degree that was so important to you to, to feel that sense of belonging. I mean, I've, I don't think I've ever really felt that either it's just like one-on-one connections with certain people and I have been like the common denominator in a group of people where they wouldn't really hang out if I was not there but they enjoy each other's company if I bring them all into one situation but even then when I was among a group of my friends and they were all interacting with each other. I always felt like I was on the outside of it. Even though I had these meaningful connections with the individual people, I could not be part of the group really. I always felt like I was on the outside looking in. I always feel like I'm on the outside looking in. And that's that's kind of in general. Like I feel like I'm on the outside looking in on myself a lot of the time too. So some of my social anxiety comes from the fact that I don't think I would phrase it Is feeling alien the way that you do but for me it's that I it's like I exist somewhere else like my body's here but I don't really inhabit it and I don't inhabit the situations that I find myself in you know people talk about mindfulness exercises and things like that and I have attempted to do those things but I never really feel connected to myself. I don't really feel connected to this world. I don't really feel connected to other people and so a lot of my social anxiety just stems from almost this feeling that I am incapable of fully connecting at all and I think that's been such a part of me for so long now that the idea of belonging feels like a pipe dream and so it's like i almost don't even bother with it anymore like i have become overall mostly a loner like i still have some connections that i hold dear but for the most part i'm a loner i am so much more comfortable with that now that i don't i don't want to be in social situations i hang out with somebody maybe once a month. I talk to Autumn pretty regularly. I have I have Calvin that I live with, but even then, even with Calvin who I adore. I love that man so much and I enjoy his company so much. I'm still really appreciative that he is a very independent person because even him, like I could not handle being around somebody all the time. I have been that disconnected for so much of my life that the idea of belonging is so foreign to me that at this point I don't even really want it because it just it just seems like something that's not even realistic it doesn't feel like it's possible so part of my brain has just been like well this is not something that's ever going to happen so we will prioritize different things now and that's that has made over time has made my my um my ability to socialize it's hindered it even further because the less desire I feel for connection with other people, the less I care about fitting within the social scripts, the less effort I put into it. And the more difficult it is for me to connect with people. I'm very thankful for the individual people in my life that I do connect with. But for the most part, I don't connect with humanity at all, or much
0: of anything. That's just hard for me to even feel. Anyway, And I think you and I are both lucky in some degree that, you know, we we are not neurotypical. And so we are not as rewarded by social interaction for others. And so we've been very lucky in that respect in that both of us are able to turn this off more. So you just almost more permanently have been like, "Eh, I can't get it. Fuck it. I'm not going to worry about it. And for the most part, for me, I can shut it off 99% of the time and be like, yeah, I'm probably always going to be an alien in this life, so let it be. But there's a lot of people out there, and I know some, that cannot turn it off because they are very socially rewarded. And so that connection is life for them. When they don't have social interaction, they get depressed, they get suicidal. And it's not because they're being borderline or sad or whatever, it's because they biologically need the neural connection from other humans and without it they falter. And so these individuals they often have that intense need to belong, they have that intense need for af- affirmation or approval or connection and because it is so biologically based for them as well, they can't turn it off and they're just stuck in that. And I feel like a lot of them often don't get accepted. And I'll bring this up and I know a lot of people are probably going to hate on me about this cuz I love it, but I cannot watch The Office, okay? Because everybody thinks it's so hilarious. But when I see the boss in there, he has that intense need to belong. He just wants so badly for somebody to love him, for somebody to be his friend, to be accepted. And he does all these things. And what happens is people laugh at him because they see this huge need. And I don't know what it is in humans. I don't know if it's genetic, I don't know if it's cultural, but I see it again and again. When you see somebody, a child, an adult, and they have this giant, fucking hole in their heart, and they're just asking for someone to please, please, for the love of God, love them. The response, more often than not, is to mock them, is to withdraw from them. And even if you're not actively mean to them, you feel overwhelmed, you feel they're clingy, you feel they're needy, you feel whatever, and you withdraw from them. And so these people that have this huge hole in their heart, when I see them, it breaks my heart. Because they have so much need and other people see it and they run from it or like in the office, they openly mock it on occasion and it it, it it it's just heartbreaking to me because they just, that's all they want. They want to belong and I can understand that and I can relate to it and I feel so bad for them because where I can logically deal with it and shut it off more often than not because my neurochemicals aren't driving me, they can't. And so, having that gaping wound being part of every single breath you breathe, if you're aware of it, that's going to be a lot of anxiety for you because you know you need this, you need this man it's being a starving person and hoping to god somebody's going to give you a piece of bread and being so scared that they're not going to or that they're going to actively kick you when you ask now that aside also with that need to belong sometimes it's just a need to be perceived in a certain way and this may be you know for ego reasons that you need to be seen as an authority or you need to be seen as maternal or this could be for personal or business reasons sometimes you need to be seen as a professional you know if you're are a professional with those air quotes you're a lawyer or you're a realtor or you're a doctor part of your livelihood is your reputation and so you need to be perceived in a certain way so you it can be very socially anxious going into certain situations because you're like okay what can i show and what can i not and what can i say and what can i not because if people start perceiving me as untrustworthy or people start seeing me as irresponsible that's going to damage me and that might be personally or that might be you know your own ego but There is that need to be perceived in a certain way. And so you go in with a lot of fear and a lot of social anxiety because if they don't, there's gonna be some severe consequences for you.
1: And in those situations, it may not just be consequences to you as a person. That, That can extend outward. If you are a CEO or a business owner or whatever, if your reputation becomes tarnished, that can tarnish the image of your business. Or if you are a pastor and there's some scandal around you, well, that impacts the congregation's faith in you that can impact how other people see your church and your congregation or how people perceive your religion. Like there are definitely situations in which image does matter. And I personally try to avoid situations like that where my image really matters. But even for me, I mean, there there is that. I am a self-employed massage therapist. To some degree, my image matters. In order for me to maintain clients, in order for me to maintain an income and to survive in this society, as much as I suck at the social scripts and I still stumble even with my clients, Like I've been very lucky that I am skilled at what I do and that I have over time accrued a fair number of clients who appreciate my skill as a professional, but they also appreciate me as a person. So I don't have to be as stressed out about it, but I get super anxious. Anytime I end up with a new client, if I get a referral from a client that I've had for a while, I've never been to this person's house before. I don't know anything about them. I'm very anxious every time. And sometimes it has really not worked out. Well, it's, and it's not because of my inabilities as a massage therapist, But there are some people where my personality does not mesh because of where I worked before. I tend to have a lot of clients that are upper middle class or upper class. um, And I don't fit in with that at all. I am, I am still kind of a a hick in a lot of ways. I am very much a, a country girl and it's, it shows, and I've never had much money and it shows I'm not a wealthy person. I don't prioritize the same sorts of things. I don't prioritize image in the same ways that a lot of people do in those communities, and so I there have been there's money that I've missed out on, there's clients that I've missed out on, because I've been to their house once and I am not comfortable there, and they are not comfortable with me, and I never see them again. So image sometimes does is important, and for some people it's more important than others, and that ha- that creates its own complex social dynamics especially if you're somebody where you have to take such careful care of your image that you are never fully able to be yourself when you have to be on all the time and you can't be vulnerable and you can't show these these other sides of yourself if you have to be operating a certain way all the time man that's a lot of pressure and even if you're somebody who generally is very social at some point i would think anyway that that's gonna that's gonna be hard that's gonna take its toll on you when you can never fully be yourself because it also calls into question if you're like that all the time and it's become such a part of you that you're even like that with people in your personal life your own friends and family like who do you have in your corner anymore who really sees you for you and then how do you know who actually is on your side how do you know who you actually are
0: intimately connected to And that's so really, really true though. I mean, for some people you are on all the time and that may be an image thing or it may be an emotional need thing. It may just be a fear thing there could be a lot of reasons why you're on all the time and that creates a lot of anxiety. And for others of us, it's more situational and the anxieties felt in this specific area and we do have times that we're off and it's just frustrating or fearful or anxious when we go into a particular situation. But whatever the reason you have for the anxiety, whatever's driving it, the reality is, is we all need to find ways to cope with that social anxiety because most of us don't have the luxury to live as hermits, to just disappear into the woods and never see another human ever. And for many of you, I imagine that would also be a horrible pronouncement. I mean, I think I would find that pretty appealing for the most part. But (laughs) I think for most people, that would be just about a death sentence. So we need to figure out how do we cope with the social anxiety? What can we do so that we can get through these situations, so that we can get those needs met and be able to connect with another human being? But we are out of time today. So that is going to be the focus of our next episode. How do you really cope with and deal with social anxiety? So we're going to go ahead and wrap up for today. Ivy, if you want to throw them all our connecty thingies, the social media stuff
1: i wish all of you could have seen what autumn was doing right then because she was making like a robotic karate chop thing with both hands and it was pretty magical and it made me wish that this was a visual medium but yes i will give all of our connecty things as autumn called it or as many of you who listen to podcasts are probably familiar with it our pluggables we'll give you our pluggables you can find us on Facebook, Instagram as different functional. And then on Twitter, we are diff, D I F F underscore functional. You can also find us at our website, www.differentfunctional.com. And if you like what you hear and you want to support us in getting better at what we're doing, uh, which hopefully you will, we also have a Patreon and you can find us at different functional on there as well. And I think that's everything. Yeah, that's everything for today. And we will talk to you guys next time about coping with social anxiety. (laughs)
0: Thank you, everybody for listening.